Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, uh, Barry Katz. Thank you so much, everybody who writes me, sends me FedExes. Uh, I read uh, an email uh, last week uh, about somebody who wrote in your letters and your, your emails, and it's incredible what you write to me from all over the world, and you get things that I could never imagine I get. Uh, I set out to do this show to try to make a difference for uh, people. And I'm glad it's it's doing that. And it's believe it or not, it's doing it for me. I've learned so much about myself, and I've learned so much about uh, what this world is all about, and what it takes to get to the next level, and deal with the disappointments and the stress, and the anxiety of trying to figure out how to get through things and and break through and and reach your potential. And I want to let all of you know that I'm very very grateful for all of your uh, support. Today, I am extremely excited because I have Sandy Grushaw here today, and uh, this man is, like, iconic to me. I've known him probably my whole uh, career, and one of the things I want to say about him before I get into a little story that's sort of like a six degrees of separation, um, when I met people early on in the business, and when you're starting early on in the business, you meet a lot of people and there's people who treat you all different ways. Just like if you're in college or in your high school or you're in a workplace somewhere, there's people who treat you with dignity and respect in those places. There's people who treat you 
in just a regular way that you're not expecting, just a normal way. And there's people who treat you at a level where you feel like, oh my God, I can't believe that person is treating me that way and, and, and is um, talking to me that way. And when I first started, I really had no real idea or knowledge of the business. All I had was a dollar and a dream and maybe an eye for talent. And Sandy was always a guy who treated me like I belonged, even when I didn't belong. And unbelievably, if I called or if I reached out, he would call back or he would, it, it was incredible to me that, that, and he gave me the confidence, one of the early people who gave me the confidence of knowing that it didn't matter what level you are in, were in the business, if you presented yourself as a nice guy and you had some semblance of shit together, that you knew something about the world that they saw, that they would treat you that way. And he always treated me like I belonged, even when I didn't belong. And I always was so grateful for that. And that's why I really wanted to get him here. And to be honest with you, I did not think that I would get him here. Uh, but uh, I'm glad he's here, and I'm very uh, grateful for that. So here's my story. Uh, one of the things about Sandy is uh, one of his homes, uh, you could say for uh, probably half of his life, was the Fox Television Network and uh, the Fox Broadcasting and the 20th Production Group and his association with all those entities. And I remember at the end of the uh, 1990s, I'd run into a young man at my comedy club that I owned in New York called the Boston Comedy Club, which was on West 3rd Street and um, about a block from Greenwich Village right next to Il Molino and the firehouse where Anderson Cooper now lives. And a young man came to me uh, saying, I'll do anything. I will do anything at all. I'm from Florida. I won a talent show in Florida. I did stand-up one time, and I won this talent show, and I came here to be a stand-up comedian. And um, there was an article written on me in Rolling Stone magazine. Here it is. Uh, they wrote about me. Uh, I'm the number one party animal in the country, and I'd like you to give me a shot. And as sometimes you do, and Sandy probably has many stories Throughout your career, people reach out to you. And some people reach out to you that are presidents and CEOs of companies that you don't do anything with. And then sometimes somebody will reach out to you who literally, you know, is one room away from being homeless. But you take the call and they have some idea or something that means something. And you think, well, what do I got to lose? You know, maybe something good will happen of this. Uh, and this young man's name was Bert Kreischer who you may know from a podcast called Burt Cast, and he also uh, has his own show as well, I believe, on the Travel Channel and does stand-up theaters all over and has done many different episodes of sitcoms uh, and is a very fun and well-respected comedian. Hasn't broken through to the big, big time yet, but has done some hour specials and has done some great work. So he goes on at the club in exchange for doing The Door, 
does a great job. He goes on. There's maybe 10 people there, 12 people there, but they, they love him. I'm really blown away. He's lovable. He's huggable. And one day, it was around after the upfronts one year where people start looking for talent again. I got a call from a young executive who was working with Overbrook Entertainment, James Lassiter, and Will Smith. And he was a guy who'd worked at Carsey Warner uh, for years and then got a job there. His name was David Tochterman. And David uh, now works at Innovative Artists, I think, as an agent. And David was a guy who, he was one of those guys, he was sort of like uh, in sports, he was like that guy who was, you know, you're, you're, you're coming up through the minor leagues and you're a great player and you're a great second baseman in the Red Sox organization and you realize Dustin Bedroy is their second baseman. He's got a 10-year contract. And no matter how great you are, unless that guy, like, literally has a stroke or gets hit by a bus, you're never going to move up. And at Carsey Warner, through whatever, uh, he was doing great there and had a great position, but there was Tom Warner, there was Marcy Carsey, there was Karen Mandeback, and there were three people there, and Karen had just been promoted to be a partner, and he was there, and he wasn't going to move up, and, and it wasn't going to happen for him there. And so he moved on to a job at Overbrook, and he knew that one of the things that people knew about me was that if I had any strength at all is I had an eye for talent. I could see somebody and I could just know it was like the dead zone. I could feel it. And so he says, do you have anybody new I could look at? I'm looking to do a development deal with a comic, with a point of view and a personality. And could you make it happen? Anybody new that I haven't seen? And he'd seen everybody that I'd worked with. I wasn't even really working with this kid. That kid's been on stage maybe three times. And I don't know what possessed me, but I said, look, um, there's this guy. He got written up in Rolling Stone, number one party animal in the country. Um, he's killing at the club. Um, I can put him on on a Saturday night if you're coming in and, and you can take a look at him. The kid had never worked a sold out show. The kid, had, like I said, had only worked a few shows. I bring David Talkerman and I take the risk and I put Bert on and he gets like a standing ovation. Now for a white comic to get a standing ovation is like in a comedy club is like one of the rarest things of the rare. African-American comedians can go on in a black club and they can get standing ovations all day long. So sure enough, what happens? David says, listen, I want to meet with this guy. He calls me up. He says, I want to do a deal with this guy. I have, uh, I can make, I can green light any deal. Uh, they trust me. That's what I'm here for. And I can do, I'm telling, I'm just telling you, Barry, I've known you a long time. The maximum I can do is a hundred thousand dollars. I'm not going to negotiate back and forth with you at all. It's just, if you want to do a development deal with myself, Will Smith and James for a show, we're going to do, we'll do it at a hundred thousand dollars. Now this kid just I don't even know if he graduated college. I don't even know. he. I mean, this guy was like had nothing. And so I say, uh, well, let me talk to him about it. We'll figure it out. I talked to him. Of course, it was a dream come true. We do the deal for $100,000. And three weeks later, Bert Kreischer, myself, and David Talkerman 
are in a conference room with Will Smith and James Lasseter at Overbrook Entertainment in the Universal City lot where they were in that big building. I forget who had it before them, but this unbelievable, incredible, all glass office building. And here Bert Kreischer is and myself and Will Smith and James Laster and David Tuckerman were like creating and putting together the ideas for the show right then and there. And we come up with an idea for a show. Um, we don't, we decide we don't want to get a showrunner right away. Somebody to, to collaborate with Bert. We want to go to the networks directly to the networks, not even to the studios to find out who they are aligned with and who would, they would want to work with and what showrunners. So again, I'm new to this process too. I mean, I've done some development deals, but I haven't done a, a ton of them. And they said, Oh, we'll make the calls to the networks. Now, when Will Smith makes a call to a network or whatever, you know, you get a you get the meeting with the top guy at every network. So every network you're going to, you're meeting with the president at the time. And I thought, you know, we're going to set up the meetings. It's going to be Bert. It's going to be David Tochterman, myself, and we're going to go in and pitch the show, which we'd flushed out. So they set up all the meetings at Fox, at CBS, at ABC. And uh, David says, look, um, listen, we want to pick you up in a car and take you to the meetings. Uh, we'll, we'll take you to the first meeting. Okay. And the first meeting was at Fox with Doug Herzog, who was the president at the time. He's now the president, well, of Comedy Central and TV Land. He oversees Viacom Entertainment Group, Spike. And... Bert and I are waiting at the whatever the hotel we were staying at that they put us up at. We're just waiting there. Uh, we don't know what we're going to be picked up. SUV rolls up. It's like a Cadillac Escalade, big Escalade. Music's pumping, rap music. I'm like, wow, this is kind of interesting. What? Never knew a driver to, to, you know, be this boisterous. Door opens. I hear, hey, fellas, you coming? I look over. It's Will Smith. Gets out of his car, comes over, shakes our hand, and says, hey, guys, come on, let's go. We're, we're going to these meetings now. We're going to Fox. We're going to sell this show. And it's him and James Lasseter, and I think David Tockerman was meeting us there, and it's me and Bert riding to a meeting with Will Smith. And he's listening to his own music because it's an album that he's about to put out. He's like, hey, I'm putting out this music. Tell me what you think of this beat. Now, listen, I, I, you know, frankly, I am the whitest guy in humanity. I'm listening to rap music. Like, if I went to a black cup, I, 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 would, I would be like a line of cocaine on a black album cover. I mean, I would just be like, I, I have no concept. I have the rhythm of a furnace. But I'm like, hey, that's, yeah, you dropped the beat really good there. That was wonderful. That's great. Anyway, so we go to the meeting at Fox, sit down with Doug Herzog, and in the room, Doug basically says, I want this show. Don't go anywhere else. I am buying the show, and let's make this happen, and, and let's, you know, don't even think about taking any other meetings. And Will, sitting across from him, got a great feeling from Doug, and a great feeling about it and said, 
okay, we'll do this. And we walk out, and again, three weeks from the day that Bert Kreischer comes in and is doing the door and passing out tickets, he's got a $100,000 deal, he's driving to a meeting with Will Smith, and we're selling a show to Fox. And even though that show didn't make it to the air, which we'll talk about most don't, I think the point I wanted to make here to everyone listening in any profession, anywhere, is the fact that if you have the hunger and the desire to do something and you're worried about whether you should leave the comforts of whatever place you are, in Bert's case it was Florida, where he was comfortable at school and doing his own thing and his family were there, but he decided, hey, I have this dream. I want to do something. I want to make something happen. The lesson here is if you don't leave wherever you are, or as your grandparents said, if you don't, <laughs> if you don't leave the dock, you're not going to get to your destination. And Bert took a risk. He left Florida. He left the comforts of where he was as the number one party animal in the country. He came. He took a chance. He did anything he could to get there. He met somebody who gave him a shot, believed in him. And then when it came time, when the spotlight was on him, he delivered. And he delivered and he exceeded everyone's expectations. And all through the process, one after the other, just like a football team in the playoffs where you win the wild card game and you're like, yeah, we won the wild card game. Oh, we got to play next week. And then you win that game and you got to play next week and you still got to keep playing until you win the Super Bowl. Bert kept playing the game no matter who was there at every level, bigger than him or whatever. He rose to the occasion and he gave it everything he could and he succeeded and truly did exceed everyone's expectations. And he pretended along the way that they had the highest fucking expectations. And it's a lesson to anybody listening out there that if you have any kind of dream at all, and you've had any kind of thought process of doing something, and you have any doubts about it, don't have any doubts at all. Go for it. Make it happen. And you never know. You might end up in a room with Will Smith. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now I'm on the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You fucking firing me up, cats. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. 
with exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Before we get started, I wanted to let you know about this one guy who kept reaching out to me over and over again. Persistent. His name was Michael Purcell. And he came to L.A. and met with me, and he told me 10 years ago he created a company called Global Cash Card, where he figured out a way to take payroll, make it paperless for companies of any size, and then allow for somebody's weekly salary to be instantly loaded anytime, anywhere, onto their own personal Visa payroll card for free. So I did some research and found that it cost around $3 for every paycheck to be cut by a firm. So that means if you're a medium or large size company, you have like a thousand checks you're writing every week, you could save $12,000 a month or over $135,000 a year. So do yourself a favor, go to globalcashcard.com, schedule live demo, speak to Michael Purcell, see how easy it is to start saving big money today, and trust me. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to Industry Standard. I am so excited uh, uh, to introduce my guest today. And uh, the list of his credits are so long, in fact, that uh, I feel like uh, this will be like an introduction that's like a trilogy. Um, Because he's had so many incarnations of an amazing career. But... um, I'm going to just say a few things about this uh, man, and uh, then we'll get into it. Um, Sandy is like a kind of executive like no other that I've ever met in my life. He's had so much experience in many different areas of the business, and the place where most people know him best is working at Fox, where he worked there for over 25 years. And under his tenure, uh, saw the debut of the American Idol juggernaut, along with major hits like 24, House, Malcolm in the Middle, and The O.C. Um, He was widely credited as a leader in establishing the new brand identity at Fox. Uh, In 1988, Barry Diller asked Grusho to build the network's advertising and promotions department. And he helped launch such signature Fox hits as The Simpsons, In Living Color, Beverly Hills, 90210, and Cops. Uh, In 1992, uh, he assumed the presidency of the network's entire entertainment operations, making him the youngest executive to ever hold such a post. Uh, In that role, he oversaw the development and launch of The X-Files, Party of Five, Melrose Place, and took the network from four to seven nights of primetime programming. 
1996, he was asked to um, work and build the Fox TV studio production division, 20th Century Fox Television, where he inherited an eighth-ranked studio with only five shows on the air. But with Sandy at the helm, the studio's output quickly uh, escalated to 22 shows, surpassing Warner Brothers Television to be Hollywood's top-ranked studio. In 1999, during the story that I just told, uh, Grusho was tapped by Rupert Murdoch and Peter Chernin to return to the network he helped build in a new role as chairman of Fox Television Entertainment Group, where he oversaw both the broadcast network and the television studio until 2005. Since then, he's been doing a number of different things. What's fascinating is he has his his own uh, advisory uh, company. Uh, Normally, I would call it a consultant, but he goes to like a first-class peninsula, four-season step higher with the advisory. uh, And I asked him, I said, what's the name of your company? And he says, uh, listen, Barry, I, I don't have a name of my company. Is that the coolest thing ever when you when you're doing an introduction like this and you realize you're sitting across from a guy who is as successful as this and doesn't have a name of a company? So starting today, I have rescinded the name of my company and it's just going to be uh, anonymous. Oh, that's already a company. Sorry. So he has his own advisory committee and during the last uh, three years, he has also uh, been chief content officer at MediaLink, where he helped build a digital content distribution business representing established media companies such as News Corp, Viacom, and major global brands such as Unilever. Uh, An early stage company at the time uh, called Machinima Maker, of course, that just did a major deal, Alloy Digital, and YouTube. During his time in the business, he has transitioned from traditional network television, traditional production, to um, the cutting-edge internet companies that are making their mark today with millions and billions of viewers, and then successfully going back and forth and merging both companies. What he's doing is unlike anybody's been doing that I know of, and we're going to talk about it today. I am so excited. Please welcome my guest, Sandy Grusho. I have so many questions for you, but normally what I like to do is I like to start at the beginning. So what I want to do is start at a time in your life, wherever you grew up, wherever it was, before you had any inkling of ever being in the entertainment business. And what was it that happened at that point in your life that you saw or that made a difference in you that helped you realize, hey, I want to get into this world. And what were your first steps moving forward into that? First of all, thank you for having me. Oh, it's an honor. uh, You know, I actually grew up in in New York, um, but but uh, not New York City. I wasn't that cool. I grew up in Queens, um, and um, really knew very little about um, the industry. Uh, Frankly, I was eleven when I left there and moved out to. Uh, Beverly Hills, as it as it turns out, uh, and that move actually exposed me to the world of Hollywood. Um, I sometimes think about where my life would have taken me had I remained um, 
in Queens, New York. Um, and uh, obviously, it's it's unknowable. But but uh, I I certainly uh, it's it's highly unlikely I would have won that wound up in the media industry, um, and and it was really moving out here and being exposed to, um, the the children of a number of people who were in the industry because uh, I was eleven years old at the time, um, and and went to El Rodeo and Beverly Hills High School, um, and then UCLA. Um, during that period of time, um, that became my world, uh, the world of, of um, you know, really sort of Hollywood and entertainment and, and the media industry. So back then, there weren't really, people weren't going to private schools. So when you went to Beverly Hills High, you were going to school with children of people that were on television. Who were some of those people? Um that's correct. Uh, <laughs> some of those people, I, I don't really remember uh, a lot of people who were in in front of the camera, but as as luck would have it, my closest friend who I happen to be having dinner with tonight, who um, has has been a buddy now for my God, 43 years. We celebrated his 11th birthday at Dan Tana's. So that'll give you an idea of how long that <laughs> restaurant has been around. Wow. Um, is is the son of uh, two entertainers, Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet. But really, it was through that relationship, and I and I had no idea when I met David um, what his parents did, um, uh, nor did I much care. Um, it was through that relationship that I was really exposed to the world of Hollywood. We spent a lot of time in Las Vegas because they were headlining back in the seventies, you know, Caesar's palace and, and the Las Vegas Hilton. And I guess really, um, I got, um, I got a sense of what was possible. Um, and it wasn't just about the industry. It was about life in general. You know, when you're living um, on the 11th floor of an apartment building in Rigo Park, New York, um, as an 11 year old, you know, you're pretty limited in in um, what you're able to imagine, right, in terms of the possibilities that exist in the world for you. Let's uh, stay with that for a second, because I I'm surprised you said that. Because to me, like, I know there's children, there's people all over the world and no, it doesn't, there's no defined, there's no box that defines your imagination wherever you are. I'm surprised that you said that in Queens, you felt that your imagination wasn't, was stifled there. But when you came to Beverly Hills, it was, it opened up. Well, I, I, I don't know that it was stifled. I, I, I think... You know, when you grow up in a middle class background, um, in a in a small, you know, as it turns out, community, um, you don't know what exists in the world, right? And and there's some naivete too. I mean, I remember the day that my father came home and said that we were moving to California and we were moving to Beverly Hills, and I was a big fan of the Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> and I, and and I thought, wow, you know, this is uh, this is fantastic. <laughs> I I didn't realize that that we were going to be moving into you know an apartment across the street from Beverly Hills High School, 
right? Uh, and and so you know, I certainly grew up on the wrong side of the tracks, even when I, you know, when I moved out to to Los Angeles and Beverly Hills as an eleven year old. Um, uh, but again, it, it, it just exposed me to a world that, that frankly, I didn't know existed. Right. Um, so, uh, I don't want to suggest that, that my, that one's imagination is, is, is ever stifled, but also, you know, we're going back to 1971 where, um, you didn't have the access to anything. Correct. Correct. Um, I think we're living in a world today where 11 year olds, you know, uh, know a lot more about what's going on in the world than than they did back in, you know, the 60s and, and, and the early 70s. And I'm curious, like, what were you feeling? What was the feeling that came over you the first time you walked into a showroom and the lights went down and there's like over a thousand people? there and you hear that mulling in the crowd and the lights go up and the music and you see your friend's parents who you you know you, you're used to seeing them in their bathrobes serving breakfast at the breakfast table and and here they are all dressed up they're they got jewelry they got the best clothes and they're giving the performance of their lives I mean, what were you feeling? Well, first of all, let me just say, I, I can't believe I'm talking about this because no one's ever taken me this far back in in my life. Um, and I've never talked about this stuff, you know, publicly. So I'm, I'm sort of humored by that. Um, well, I think it's, you know, the thing is, I think it's important because and the reason why I do it and why I think it's it's liberating is because people want to know about what it takes sure. in the journey and what takes you in the path you go. And the problem is, is that when people sit across from somebody like yourself, in my opinion, they're always focused in on the things on the now. And the now is wonderful. The now is amazing. But the now isn't shaping you. Sure. As we speak, it may be in the future, you'll say it did. But the thing that shaped you and helped you... The thing for our audience, which is so fascinating, is the fact that you're one person living in an apartment across from Beverly Hills High, and there's hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people in apartments all over the place, but you figured out a way to take a journey that got you and navigated you to the top of your profession. And I think people want to know what feelings they had when they first saw something and what moved them. And sure, that's why I think sure. it's fascinating. Nope. Ha happy, happy to explore it with you. Um, although it feels a little bit more like a therapy session than it does in an <laughs> interview. Uh, and it's appropriate that I'm on a couch. Um, you know, to, to answer your question, I, I think that... Um, Sitting in a showroom in Caesar's Palace and, you know, at a booth and and seeing my parents' friends uh, walk out on stage uh, and receive all that, you know, sort of adulation from the crowd was magical, right? It's very seductive stuff. Um, I don't know that that in itself necessarily... Um, drove my decision to ultimately uh, start a career in in entertainment 
truth be told, you know, jumping ahead, I guess, uh, uh, 10 years, I graduated from UCLA and frankly didn't have a clue as to what I wanted to do with my life. And, and actually, as it just so happens, another very good friend of mine who I met, um, not at an, in elementary school, but in, but at Beverly Hills high school, his father, um, was running Fox at the time. Uh, uh, the movie studio, a gentleman named Joe was who, who also is deceased. Um, and that's how I got my internship, uh, at, uh, uh, in the marketing department at 20th century Fox film Corp. Joe called a gentleman named Tom Sherrick, who also sadly just passed. Um, uh, and, and said, you know, interview this kid He's a um, friend of my son's. I think he's a pretty sharp guy, you know, and, and um, you know, if you would consider giving him an internship, I would really appreciate it. And that's how I met Tom in, in 1983. Um, and... You know, I think that had my friend's father not been running the studio at the time, I don't exactly know how I would have found my point of entry. I At that point, I had some sense that I was interested in the entertainment business. Right? I was a communication studies major at UCLA, um, and I had been in and around uh, the world enough Um Again, to to have some sense that that um, that was something I ought to pursue, but I thought long and hard about going to law school. You know, I was a maniac at UCLA. I I um, you were the number one party animal at UCLA. No, at the absolute contrary. Um, I I turned myself into virtually a straight A student. Um, uh, I, there was like a switch that flipped when I was at UCLA. Um, and, and suddenly I realized that I had no net, right? That, um, I had to make it on my own. Uh, and... I think it, it, at that moment in time, I really started to apply myself. I really started to drive myself. I started to create um, a level of discipline um, and, and sacrifice in my life that served me well when I started working at Fox because I was sort of equally <laughs> maniacal um, about how hard I worked uh, for uh, and with the, you know the the people I was assigned to. What was it that finally made you real? You know how people sometimes people are overweight, and you ask them like, "What was the moment where you decided to lose weight? What happened? Was there something that happened back then in college where it was like this thing that hit you like, I have no net? Like, what was it? What was the event that happened? Or you just looked in your bank account and you said, I got six dollars here and I and I and my parents don't have any money and I have no one. To, like, how? how did yeah, I, I don't know that it was necessarily conscious. Um, I, I had always had something that was defining me. Um, at, in high school, I was 
the the track star, you know, um, and uh, at UCLA, it was pretty tough to be a track star. I tried. Um, I was actually on the varsity team my freshman year, but um, it became quickly apparent to me that um, that was not something I was going to be able to succeed at at that level. Uh, and I think I just started to channel my energy into something else where I felt a desperate need to to succeed, right? Um, and um, I think that that fuel um, is to some degree fear-based, right? When, when you know that you got to make it happen, right? When, when, when you know that there is no net, and and most people in the world don't have the benefit of a net. A very small number of people. We happen to know a lot of them um, because of the the world in which we live. Um, you know, Hollywood, California, but um, you know, very small number of people. And and I think you know, um, for me, I just woke up and realized that. Uh, I I better drive myself um, to be successful. Which obviously showed. So you take the internship. This is a therapy session. <laughs> this is not an interview. <laughs> it'll, it'll, <laughs> it's therapeutic for all of us. Um, and so you get the you get the you get the, the internship at Fox uh, with Tom Sherrick, and um, there's a number of people throughout the years that get internships at Fox. But you navigate through and you get to the next level when so many other interns just come and go. Mm -hmm. Take our audience through what happened there on the internship. How did you, you said it fear-based, but how did you make everybody know there that you were invaluable and they needed to keep you around. What did you do? Yeah, look, when, when I talk to people, um, and, and this is where discussions generally begin, um, as opposed to going back to when I was 11, living in, on the 11th <laughs> floor of an apartment building in Regal Park, when, when I talk to people about what it takes to be successful, um, you know, my feeling is it takes a reasonable amount of intelligence, right? A reasonable amount of creativity, uh, an extraordinary amount of hard work, uh, and um, a good deal of good fortune. I think those four things taken together um, are really what allowed me to succeed during um, my time at Fox and, and frankly, not just my time at Fox, but, but, but throughout my entire, you know, career, um, I think serendipity is a lot of it. Um, I again had some vague sense that, that marketing was interesting. Um, it seemed particularly sexy that it was the marketing of motion pictures. Um, I had no knowledge that I was creative. None whatsoever. I only discovered that I was creative 
during my time at Fox, during the early days. And that's where the serendipity comes in. Um, I could have easily discovered that, that I didn't have a talent for marketing, um, for, for the, the creation of advertising and, and promotion of, um, movies. Uh, and it turns out that I did. What, what was the first thing that happened where you said, I can do this. I am creative. It, it's so funny. You should ask me that question. Um, it's it's actually a lame example, right? But I remember standing in the hallway, and um, one of the uh, senior marketing executives in in the division um, was was holding a, an ad for a movie called Two of a Kind, starring John Travolta and Olivia Newton John, which had not yet um, premiered. And, um, I don't remember exactly what the copy line was, but the copy line didn't translate smoothly to an outdoor billboard. And, and, um, I remember just sort of saying to him as he was pondering, um, how to apply it to an outdoor campaign, just spitting out a line and and he looked at me and he said that's good <laughs> and, that, and that was sort of the first moment where i where i was like okay that you know i'm i'm glad that's satisfying to you feels pretty good to me too and you drove by the streets of los angeles and the first time you saw the billboard did it have that line on it 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 did and by the way, that was a magical feeling back in the day when I was in my early twenties, and 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 I had the good fortune of of working inside um, a movie, you know, marketing department. The um, ability to sit at home and watch a commercial, or be in a theater and watch a trailer or open up a newspaper and look at an ad or drive by a billboard and know that you somehow um, touched those things, um, made a mark on those things, was really gratifying and, and a lot of fun. Now, of course, the problem was that we had lots of really bad movies, <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, um, it was, uh, it wasn't an easy stretch of time, uh, at, uh, at the studio. And then fortunately, you know, the movie started to, uh, you know, started to prove, improve. And, and, and again, I had the privilege of working on, I'm dating myself now, you know, the original Die Hard. I think they're what up now to like 17. Yes. Um, and, Which uh, was shot uh, at this building right around the that, corner. That's here. exactly, that, that's exactly right. Uh, and, and was quite involved in, in the, in the creation of the materials, uh, the marketing materials, you know, for that movie. Um, those are, those are moments and, and, and memories that, um, you know, are really sort of wonderful. And I still get, you know, I still get excited about it. 
Right. So you move up through internship, you prove yourself, you become more involved and have a higher position in the marketing department. And tell me how. Well, by the way, I'll tell you a little uh, anecdote about that. I would love that. There was um, uh, there was a day in which uh, the people to whom I was responsible, there were two directors of creative advertising and I was bouncing back and forth, you know, basically helping each one of them. And um, there was a day in which they all sort of sat me down and said, we want to give you a job. We want, we want to make you the manager of creative advertising um, as opposed to being an intern. Well, <clears throat> you know, being reasonably naive as a, you know, 23 year old, I uh, went running over, you know, to Joe was Ann's office, who was still president of, of the studio. It didn't last much longer than that, by the way, he was shortly thereafter replaced by, um, God, I just had his name and, and, and I lost it. You're going to have to, uh, That's okay. uh Larry Gordon. <laughs> right. Uh, and so I remember running over to Joe and saying, um, what do you suggest I do? I mean, I can obviously remain an intern because what I was supposed to do was move to the various departments within the, the marketing um, division. Uh, so there was media and there was publicity and there was something called national promotions. Um, and of course, there was creative advertising. And I, and I said, what do I do? You know, I mean, obviously I could ease, you know, I could continue to learn the various facets of, of movie marketing, or I can take this job in creative advertising. And without missing a beat, he looked at me and said, schmuck, take the job. <laughs> uh, and, and so that's exactly what I did. I, I took the job. Um, and, and that really started me out on, on my path in, in that world of um, the creation of, of marketing materials for motion pictures. And so you make your mark there, and how do you make the move to the next part of Fox? Well, you know, short, shortly thereafter, um, a gentleman named Barry Diller um, never heard of him. Uh, joined joined the company. He he left um, obviously Paramount um, to to come to Fox, uh, and um, I could see that that he had his eye on 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 the work that I was doing inside the movie marketing department. Um, again, what, what I realized, um, and I, and I, and I didn't know I had this inside me, but, um, I was a bit contrarian in the way I thought, I guess some of it was that I was just, you know, young and young and sort of dumb, right. When, when you're, when you're new to something, there's a tendency to bring um, a unique perspective to it as opposed to, you know, when you've lived inside a world for a very lengthy period of time, you know, you start to impose sort of the rules and regulations and norms on yourself. And I remember we released a, um, a movie called The Princess Bride, you know, just a wonderful, wonderful film. Great film. Um, and directed by Rob Reiner. And and I remember at the time that I would open the calendar section uh, of the LA Times every Friday, 
and I would look at you know what must have been 20 full page ads filled wall to wall with quotes from reviewers and you could get a headache and and I remember thinking that if every movie um could do this it 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 was really in 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 a sense um first of all people were probably desensitized to it you know it lost its credibility uh and it was impossible to stand out in the crowd so of course the princess pride was extraordinarily well reviewed and and we came in and and we were you know the movie opened and we came in as we were wont to do on the monday after the opening and and immediately started to put together you know the the campaign for the second week the all important second week and um the higher ups in the d- department were were really sort of talking about a review campaign and and i remember sitting there one day in a in a meeting that that Barry was in uh and sort of shaking my head and and saying um you know everybody's got great reviews right so to some degree they become meaningless why don't we just forget the reviews and 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 use the key art for the princess bride and use the words just ask anyone who's seen it period and i remember the moment really vividly barry looked at me and he pounded his fist on the desk and he said do it um for him and i would realize this um i would understand this um in 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 the ensuing years when when he asked me to start the you know sort of first proper marketing department if you will um at at the Fox Broadcasting Company um he was a contrarian uh he he really felt that um if if the world was going left it was absolutely incumbent upon you to go right uh and we shared that energy again serendipitously who knew um and and i think once he started the network um and and the first year of the network did not go well um they hadn't found their raison d'etre there was clearly an ability given um, independent stations around the United States to to cobble together the fourth network. Um, uh, But, but what there wasn't was a real point of view on, on, on what the programming ought to be. Uh, And, and the early shows were largely, um, similar to what one could find on the other networks. So in retrospect, you sort of go like, why on earth would anybody have ever left CBS, NBC, or ABC for the pleasure of, you know, going to channel 66 on your <laughs> UHF dial, you know, to watch a show starring, you know, Bill Bixby or Patty Duke or George C. Scott and Mr. President. Um, anyway, um, 
we we really um we really stumbled into a point of view uh and and um my timing was brilliant because I missed that first year Barry asked me to come over uh and and really build the department because it was largely being farmed out the you know the 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 creative work. There were a couple of guys up at um, KTTV in Hollywood, actually very talented guys uh, named Bob Bibb and Lou Goldstein, who went on uh, to create um, the look and the feel of the uh, WB years later. What's fascinating is, is that he gave you the opportunity to come over largely due to one moment where you took a risk you were in that meeting, that creative meeting, talking about the Princess Bride, and you got one of the most powerful guys in town sitting there. Everybody's walking on eggshells. Things possibly might not go well. And you, when he's talking about the advertising campaign, the quotes, you're shaking your head. Now, and you step out of that comfort zone and you say, no, that's everybody's doing that. Let's do this. And if you had never taken that risk, you may never have gotten that call to go over there. Yeah. Look, I I don't want to largely. Yes. But, but I think that that one particular event was, um, one particular event there was obviously a, a number of them where where he was privy to the the work that was being done and and you know my contribution to that work and trust me there were a lot of really talented people in in the marketing department being led by Tom Sherrick uh, you know worked with a woman named Cynthia Wick and a and a gentleman named Bob Harper and all you know really talented people um and it's a team sport Right. Um, that's the other thing that that people tend to um, conveniently forget. Well, the reason why they conveniently forget it, Sandy, is because the team sport of network television is a bunch of people like in a bunch of other high-powered companies where there's a bunch of executives sitting around a table looking around and... It's like the Hunger Games. <laughs> In their mind, they know that as time moves forward, they have to take out all these people to get to the next <laughs> level. But they can't show them that in their mind, they want to take them out. They just have to show them, hey, we're working as a team. Everything's great. But you don't get to the point that you do in your career because you're always a team player. You get to where you get in your career because you're a team player, but you figure out a way to navigate around the politics of people who are trying to take you down and take you out to move past you. Yeah, I, I would say there's there's a lot of truth to that. But And, and look, I've spent time thinking about this over the years. Um, this isn't the first time that I've hearkened back. Um, I was pretty young and naive back then. I mean, I really just worked my ass off, right? And 
again, I had a modicum of intelligence. It turns out I somehow, some way had some talent for this stuff. Um, and, and I was in the right place at the right time. If anything, I would say to to your listeners, whoever they may be, um, you know, politics are overrated, right? Do the work and be really good and you will be successful, right? Spend less time worried about worrying about the politics and more time focusing on the quality of the work. Because in the end, that will win out. And, and I think that that's what happened for, you know, for me, um, certainly as I, you know, moved um, through the ranks in the early years. You know, as I got older, I don't want to sound Pollyanna about this. I mean, you know, you do start to realize that... Um, uh, you know, there are politics involved and particularly at a company like that. I mean, it, 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 it is Darwinian, you know, all of these companies are right. Um, and, and not only is, is, is it Darwinian, but it's, you know, what have you done for me lately? Um, so it's, you know, it's tough stuff, but, but in the early days for me anyway, it, it wasn't about strategizing about how to get from here to there. It was about working my ass off. Um, as it turns out, I think doing pretty good work and people recognizing that I could help them move the needle. I, I could have gone over to... The Fox Network, at, as a, you know, I was like 27, 28, um, and, and, you know, could have brought my contrarian style, uh, if you want to call it that, uh, to, to the network and, and failed miserably. Uh, and, and my career, at least at Fox, would have been over right then and there, as it, as it turned out. Um, again, I was in the right place at, at the right time. I mean, probably, you know, one of my more, as I think back, the seminal moments in my career was standing in front of Barry in, in 1988, literally was my first day on the job. Um, and, and I think that there, there had been, a headline, maybe it was the day before, maybe it was it was even the day of in in Daily Variety that said Fox loses ninety nine million dollars. News Corp considers shuttering the network. It's into that that I become the um, senior vice president of uh, advertising and promotion. And I remember Barry asking me to take a look at some of these promos that that were being cut by these two gentlemen up at KTTV, um, which I did. And he asked me what I thought of them. And I said, I actually think they're pretty good. I said, I think they're a little bit inside themselves, right? Nobody knows who this shoe salesman guy Al is, 
right? And and so I think you got to kind of pull back a little bit and, and be a little bit more generic about um, what you're communicating about these shows because you have to assume most people have no clue um, as to as to what they're about. They don't even know that they're on. Um, but I said, I think you have a bigger problem than, you know, uh, the creative quality of the promos. And and he looked at me in his intimidating way. And and I knew he liked me, by the way, and he was still intimidating. <laughs> and and he said, well, what do you suggest in in that tone? And and I said, well, I I actually think the biggest problem is that when you run these promos on Fox stations, both the O&Os and, and, and the affiliates, but particularly in prime time. Just explain to our audience the O&O. is just owned and operated stations. Thank you. Right, which tend to be the backbone of any network. Got it. And, and Rupert and Barry um, uh, acquired um, some, some stations from John Kluge at the time. Uh, in in major markets like New York and and Los Angeles, which of course was KTTV, um, that that really represented the backbone of of the new network. Um, anyway, I, I said, you know, the 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 biggest problem is that when you run these promos during prime time in particular, it's tantamount to talking to yourself because nobody's watching. There's no circulation. The ratings are so low that it doesn't matter if the promos are good or not or or are good or not because nobody's seeing them. And again, you know, sort of typical Barry intimidation. Well, well, what do you suggest? And I, I said, well, um, you know, the only thing I can really think of is is to get off our own air and and spend money on radio and cable. And at the time, cable was, you know, again, we're going back to 1988. I mean, it was sort of the MTV networks, you know, period. Um, uh, and uh, I said, you know, TV Guide. Uh, and, and he looked at me as as I'm saying this and he said, do you not read and of course, he was alluding to the headline in in Variety, you know, that the company was was in, you know, obviously, uh, if not dire straits financially, it was not in great shape. Um, and and it was at that moment, it was in that moment in time. And you want to talk about taking a risk. Um, I looked at him and I said, well, if you don't want to spend any money off air, then I may as well go back to the movie division because I don't think I can help you. And um, as the words are escaping my mouth, uh, um, you know, I'm having a stroke. (laughs) Uh, And I have no idea what the response is going to be. And the response was, as it turns out, classic Barry who, again, I didn't know all that well at the time, got to know him a little bit better in the ensuing years. Um, And his reaction was to smile at me. And and I think in that moment, what I sort of realized was that he really uh, appreciated, um, respected, I mean, to the best, 
you know, to the best of his ability, you know, respecting anybody, right, um, given his brilliance, and, and I think that's an overused word. I mean, he's, he's one of the guys that is truly brilliant. Um, he needs somebody to stand up to him. Uh, and he said to me, in the most pejorative way possible, okay, I'll tell you what. You go make your little ads, your little TV spots, and come back to me, and I'll tell you whether or not I want to spend some money or no money. Off you go, literally. And I remember walking out of his conference room thinking, I'm a dead man. <laughs> I, my life had been so great months earlier. I was flying to New York first class, <laughs> staying at the Regency Hotel, showing, you know, possible posters, you know, <laughs> alternatives to Mike Nichols for Working Girl, you know, literally pinching myself. <laughs> like, how can it get better than this? And flash forward a couple of months, and Barry is saying, off you go. Uh, and and I'm essentially walking back to my office, um, and nothing, no real infrastructure. Um, and and so, you know, I, I, I did I, I, what was natural at the time was I called a bunch of vendors with whom I had relationships when I was in the movie business, who actually had never done television advertising before. And I said, you got to get over here, hurry. And, and they did. And we talked a, a lot about um, how we could position the one night that, that actually had a little bit of a pulse, to be fair. Um, and that was Sunday night. And there was a show called 21 Jump Street with uh, a, a young actor named Johnny Depp in it. I don't know whatever happened to him. <laughs> um, that that was starting to get a little bit of a heartbeat with a young audience. Um, uh, there was a show called America's Most Wanted that had premiered on the Fox stations through Stephen Chow's group that had um, made its way, you know, to the Fox network. There was a, a show that very few people had, had, had heard of, but was starting to get a little bit of a, um, a bump called Married with Children. And, um, and then a whole slew of comedies behind that, including the Tracy Ullman show, which at the time had six, a 60 second vignette in every episode um, called The Simpsons. And um, what I what I and we realized as we were talking in the room was that we didn't have enough money to take out individual ads for all of the comedies that were on on Sunday night. There was also a show called Duet. Um, one of the uh, women who had a very small role in the show was a woman named Ellen DeGeneres. Um, was that Mary Page Keller? That correct. Was correct. Um, so anyway, we um, we we put together an ad um, in which rather than um, really leaning into those individual shows and trying to communicate the, the essence of what those shows were, and we were thinking TV Guide at the time, which Fox hadn't yet, News Corp hadn't yet acquired, um, 
we we would try to create a sensibility. And and I don't know if you remember the the old um Tammy Faye Baker shot and her husband with her crying hysterically. Of course. And the makeup running down her face. Of course. You know, a very iconic image. Something I have sinned or something was Well, we three quarters of the TV guide ad was that shot. And at the very base of the ad, um, in in what was called, you know, thumbnails, we had, you know, little inset boxes of married with children. And and duet and the Tracy Ullman show and it's the Gary Shandling show, um, which Fox was airing uh, in, a, in a second window off of Showtime. And the headline for the ad was now that they're gone, we're the funniest thing on television. <laughs> and, um, you know, risky. uh no one had had actually, you know, certainly CBS, NBC, and ABC weren't running ads like that. And was there a point after that where, like, you noticed that there was like a write a rating spike? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I'm I'm probably going way too deeply into this particular anecdote. Um, so forgive me for that. Oh, no, this is great. I'll jump ahead. Um, bottom line is, I showed Barry the work, and he loved it. And he said, you have three and a half million dollars. You essentially spend it wisely. Three and, and a half million for how long? Uh, it was one shot. Three and uh, a half million for just advertising one week nationally as opposed to spreading it out over a month. It was one one week. Yeah. Yeah. We were we were gonna we were Got gonna it. take a real shot Got to it. see what would happen? Um, so you do radio, MTV, you do uh, print ads, you do everything. Right. Well, as it turns out, I, I I walked back to my office and realizing that a I had no experience in media, and b there was no media department. <laughs> so somebody had mentioned to me that there was this woman in research who had actually bought radio at a company called Western, um, and uh, she may be able to be helpful. So I walked down to the research department, which was one office with two people in it. And I said, is there a Pam Satterfield here? Uh, and and she raised her hand and said, I'm Pam. And I said, Pam, I'm, I'm Sandy. I hadn't met her. Um, and I said, you know, I'm the new head of advertising and promotion. And I just met with Barry and and he's given me some money and, you know, I need some help in, in terms of figuring out how to spend it. And she looked at me and, and was astonished. And, and she said, you got money from him? <laughs> and, and what became clear in that moment to me was that um, there was nothing genius about what I was asking for. There were obviously people who were pressing him for money up until that time. I just don't think he had the faith in anybody to to spend it. But you. And and that was, you know, that that was a moment that that landed on me. Um anyway, it was really her idea. She basically said, 
three and a half million dollars is not going to allow us to go into every market in this country. So why don't we choose 10 markets and really blow them out and demonstrate to Barry that our programming is sensitive to off-network marketing? Because if we're able to demonstrate that, we'll probably be able to get more money. And and I said, well, that sounds like a really good plan to me. And that's exactly what we did. And And lo and behold, we you know, we came in on Monday morning um, and the results were pretty eye popping. The markets in which we spent off network dollars uh, saw really significant bumps, whereas all the other markets um, where we spent no money were basically flat. And, And at that moment in time, you know, I think I remember Barry calling me down to his office and and it almost felt like um, him saying to me, okay, we have the recipe now. Let's go. Let's do this thing. And um, we did, right? But again... The amount of, of good fortune in, in, in all those things aligning for me personally, the opportunity um, uh, shouldn't be lost on your listeners. I think what also isn't lost on the listeners, which you are so humble and you sort of deflect is the fact that there's hundreds of people who were in contact with Barry Diller. Hundreds of people who had the opportunity to take a risk and say, here, we're going to, I believe, my instincts tell me that we should do it this way. But as that uh, young lady in the quasi-media department so eloquently put it, you got money from Barry Diller? So you were the only one who made him feel safe. No one else figured out how to make him feel safe. So you can tell you can tell the audience and the listeners all along that it's luck and it's fortuitous and hey, it was serendipity. Yeah, there's serendipity, but then when you get the serendipity, you have to act in a way that gets you to the next level. And and that's what you did, which is amazing. So tell me the transition now from when you get to when you're in this position to being like the head of the network and then eventually the head of the studio and then eventually the head of both. Take me through that trajectory. Oh man. Well, first to just to tie a little bit of a a, a ribbon around uh the story I just told. I, I guess if there's a if there's a common thread through all of it, it it's about risk taking. You know, it's about stepping outside your comfort zone. Um, you know, and 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 taking chances. Uh, obviously, by definition, having no idea how things are going to work out. Um, I I think people who stay in their comfort zone um, are are probably uh, destined to lead less interesting lives than than people who take risks, right? And you have to know when you take risks that that there's going to be some failure, and and that's not always easy to accept. 
um, uh, particularly for type A's, you know, who are used to succeeding. Um, but uh, I, I, I don't think that playing it safe uh, is, is a winning strategy uh, in Hollywood um, and probably uh, in, in all walks of life. I would agree with that. So again, so uh, go back and take me through that trajectory of the next steps of going from this position sure. to being the, you know, the head of Fox to the network to being the head of the studio 20th century and then overseeing both. Look, I, I, you know, it's we're talking about a large um, or a long span of of, of time. Um so, so I don't know how to uh, in, encapsulate it. Um, I, I'll, I'll only tell you that again in the, you know, in the moments that sort of mark a career. I remember sitting across the desk from from Barry. Um, he had called me down to his office for some reason. Maybe it was to show him an ad or something that we were working on, and he was on the phone. And I didn't know who he was on the phone with, um, but it was clear to me that he was talking about, they were talking about somebody else. Um, and as it turned out, he was talking to a gentleman named Bob Daly, who of course is legendary, you know, one of the titans of our business, you know, having run, you know, Warner Brothers for many years uh, with Terry Samuel. Uh, and... Um, they were um, talking about a guy who had been running a company called Lorimar. There were there were two people running Lorimar. Um, one of them was Bernie Brillstein, and and another one of them um, was essentially turning out the lights at Lorimar. Right, and Bob was was giving um, Barry a reference on on this particular person um, who turned out to be Peter Chernin, <laughs> who, who's had an okay career um, and, and was very instrumental in, in my own career. So he came over um, and we very quickly formed um, a bond. I think mostly because he realized that he needed to be something that the network hadn't had up until that point, which was a real ambassador to the Hollywood creative community. Um, and, a, and, and a guy who was focused on the development of shows and really had no interest in marketing whatsoever. And I'm sure Barry told him, don't worry about marketing. You know, this guy, Sandy's got it covered. Uh, and, and that was very much our relationship. Um, he left me alone um, trusted me, uh, and, and, and did his thing. Um, and, um, I, re I, I remember at, at one point in time and, and I'm really bouncing around here. Uh, we, we launched a little show called the Simpsons. Um, uh, and I've got some crazy stories about that experience. Um, but it obviously was quite successful. And um, uh, the problem was we didn't have enough episodes. Uh, and so we were, you know, running 
um, repeat after repeat, was driving everybody crazy, no one more so than, you know, um, Jim Brooks at, at the time, who I had an opportunity to work with in the in the movie division because um, he did a movie called Broadcast News. Um, of course, and I, spent, I spent many hours on his couch going through copy lines uh, for... Uh, uh, that particular uh, that particular film uh, again a whole other story I've got uh, I can go down many different paths here um, but but anyway we decided to move the Simpsons to Thursday night against the Cosby Show which lore has it and I wasn't in the room was actually something that Rupert wanted to do and it and it kind of sounds like a Rupert move. Right. I mean, talk about a riverboat gambler. I mean, the most courageous man in business I've ever seen. Uh, and I worked my ass off along with a lot of other really talented people, dozens upon dozens of people in, in the marketing department to successfully move this fragile show which had done very well on Sunday night, but but which we were running the sprockets off of because we didn't have enough episodes um, to Thursday night to go head to head against the Cosby show. And Cosby was the number one show on television. Number one show on television. Um, so many thought this was an act of insanity, um, but it was a defining moment because it really demonstrated how how different we were from the other networks. Uh, I mean, it was it The was, Simpsons was the anti-Cosby, as was Married with Children. But you know what it was? It was the Princess Bride to the hundredth power. The ad with no quotes, putting The Simpsons up against Cosby. It's the same theme. Well, it's 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 contrarian. That's right. Right. Um, it's bold. Um, and it's and, what people talk about, regardless of anything. People talk about it. It was it was noisy. Anyway, um, I remember waking up the day after we did it. We got the ratings, and it was extraordinary. We essentially tied Cosby, <laughs> um, which was ridiculous <laughs> for this. As as Brandon Tartikoff used to refer to Fox, this coat hanger network. <laughs> Right there, we were, you know, <laughs> against the number one show on television Thursday night, right? Um, tying them in in um, you know the key demographic, and and I remember calling or speaking to Barry and Jamie Kellner, who yeah. I've not mentioned up until this point, but but he, was, he was there when the network very started. instrumental in in the creation of the network and instrumental in in my life and and somebody with whom, you know, I always shared a, a wonderful relationship. And Peter. And I basically said to all three of them as a joke, because we had a show called like Totally Hidden Video mm -hmm. on the air, um, which was a pretty <laughs> lousy show. Um, Part of the coat hanger. Candid camera, um, you know, with, with Fox spin. Uh, and, and I remember saying to them, if I cut another totally hidden video promo, I'm going to have to kill myself. <laughs> and they all had the same reaction. <laughs> and a week later, and again, this was very much, I think, 
Barry's philosophy, um, who always believed on, you know, you're a sports fan. Sometimes you hear teams draft the best athlete even though they may not fit a specific need that that team has. The team believes that um, you can't teach athleticism. It's true. It's two things. You either draft the best athlete on the board or you fill the position that you need with the best person at that position. Well, and and again, for Barry... um, you know, his attitude was, I guess, look, the kid did a, a really good job in advertising and promotion. Why don't we make him the head of scheduling and current programming? <laughs> and and Peter, who, you know, I think um, is very much his own man and an extraordinary executive, you know, certainly borrowed some of, of you know, Barry's point of view and philosophy and whatnot. I think, you know, he took the best of Barry. Uh, and and so he certainly didn't stand in the way of it. So literally I was the head of current programming scheduling. And and we had to replace me in in the marketing job, um, which didn't work out very well. And so within six months, Peter said, I need you to not only be the head of current programming and scheduling, but I need you to take back marketing. And while we're at it, you may as well oversee specials. So <laughs> why don't we make you the executive vice vice president of, of the entertainment division? And and essentially you're my number two. And um Fantastic. That was not a bad day. That was not a bad day. You didn't have to go in anybody's office and say, should I take this job or should I stay with the other thing? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so that that really began, you know, the the path. Um, Peter and I worked very closely together. Uh, um, the network continued to grow. Uh, we we. Uh, you know, had solidified, uh, electrified in many ways Sunday night with the combination of The Simpsons and Living Color and and Married with Children. We had cops going on Saturday night. Then, then you know, we launched 90210, um, and that broadened the definition of who we were. Um, uh, but again, um, the shows were all um, uh, anti- you know, sort of traditional network. Nobody would have ever, you know, deigned to, to embrace a youth ensemble drama, mm-hmm. right, at, at one of the big three networks. So we were decidedly younger and hipper and edgier and 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 the risk takers. And, and not only was that happening in front of the camera, but it was also happening behind the scenes, as I just described, you know, from an executive standpoint. Uh, and then I remember one morning in 1991, two, um, Barry had left the company, which was actually very sad for me because, um, like as many people as, as, you know, who tell, um, you know, sort of horror stories, um, about how tough he is and, and scary he is. I love the guy. Like, you know, he walked on water for me. I'd never seen anybody, 
left brain, right brain, you know, that strong, right? Now, as it turns out, Chernin is too. So I was very fortunate um, to be exposed to executives of that caliber. And, and to anybody listening, you know, if you have an opportunity to work with somebody really smart, take the job, right? Because there's nothing better. You know, it's, it's, it's the fastest path to, to growth. One of my favorite quotes of Lauren Michaels is that if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong fucking room. I, I, trust me, I, that was not a problem for me <laughs> <laughs> ever, um, nor is it now. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I, I had the opportunity to be in the room with, you know, legends, you know, Ruben Rock, Barry Diller, Peter Chernin. Um, you know, these are extraordinary you know, business minds, creative minds. Um, anyway, it, it, I I remember having breakfast one morning with Chuck Rosen, who was running 90210 for us. And um, the reason he wanted to have breakfast with me was he was desperate to have all of the kids graduate from high school. And I remember him saying, like, Luke Perry has hair growing out of his ears. <laughs> it's time. Right. And we were, you know, we did not want to mess with that thing. All right. So that's a big decision. They're no longer in high school. You, you know, um, they're going off to college. So I said, look, let me let me think about it. Obviously, I need to talk to Peter about this. And 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 so I will. Um, hang in there. So I went back to my, my office that morning. Um, and before I could even place a call to Peter, he called me and said, come down to my office. So I walked down to his office and he asked me to sit down and he said, um, you, you need to know that last night, uh, Joe Roth, who was running the feature film company, um, left the company which was code for, you know, Rupert decided that, that it was time to make a change. And I said, well, that's interesting. Um, who's going to replace him? He said, well, Rupert wants me to replace him. And, and I remember really, and again, a little bit of naivete here, probably more than you might imagine. I said to him, well, who's going to replace you? <laughs> um, not thinking for a bloody second that um, he was going to say what he said, which was, I think it should be you. And and I literally did a hamada hamada because <laughs> <laughs> I had no experience overseeing development. Um, and... Uh, this actually got pretty noisy. I mean, there was a story in the LA Times that I had been offered the job, but but that I was um, declining to accept the position. Um, that was real fear. I didn't think that I was ready. And um, so, when he said that to you after the humana humana humana, you said, uh, Peter. With all due respect, thank you. I'm honored, but I'm not ready. Well, I not only had to say it to him, but more importantly, I had to say it to Jamie Kellner, 
who was really technically Peter's boss. Barry was gone. This really like blows me away what you're saying here because this contradicts every single thing that you've lived your life and the philosophy you've lived your life with. I mean, every time you've stood up and you took a risk with no net, did this, did that, went there, um, made decisions and, and that people weren't expecting. Isn't that funny? What, what, what do you think it was about that that made you decide, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go away from what I am as a person? You know, uh, we're going to need to call in a shrink for this. <laughs> Because uh, I don't think you and I are capable of getting at the truth. You're good, Barry, but you're not that good. Uh, and if I had the answer, I'd just tell you. So you don't have the answer. You know, I just, I, yes, it was a a reasonably uncharacteristic move based on everything else that 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 I've explained, other than to tell you that I think my general drive, which I don't think is a good drive. I don't recommend it is, is fear-based. Yeah. You'd said that early on. Yeah. So here, now what's interesting, a lot of you listening should know there is something that does happen with very powerful people that want you to do things that it's an incredible thing that happens and it's the power of no. And if you, if somebody offers you something and they're generous and they're offering you something and say, I want you to do this and I'm giving you this opportunity and you say no, a person who is very successful in the position of power, believe it or not, doesn't just go, okay. They have it in their mind that this is a chess match and I'm going to win and I'm going to turn that no into a yes. So ultimately, what Sandy did without even knowing that he was doing it was he was making them want him more. Um, I think that there's some truth to that. Um, a lot of different things happen. My God, I haven't thought about this stuff, Barry, in ages. Um, it's, <laughs> it's crazy. Well, first of all, one humorous story. Uh, there was a gentleman named Bill Haber, who's a legendary agent at CAA who oversaw television. He was Aaron Spelling's uh, a direct agent, with Thomas's direct agent. He called the office and and asked me to lunch, and I really didn't know who the guy was because I, again, I wasn't involved in development. Um, I wasn't really out there in the community, you know, working it. You know, I wasn't a D girl. I came up <laughs> through marketing. Right? And and I remember sitting at, at a little Italian restaurant on Pico Boulevard, Bart, Pico Boulevard called Primi. And and he looked at me and he said, "You know, I just had to meet you." Because how could anybody turn down that job? <laughs> and, and and by the way, as it happened, um, you know, Jamie at one point sat me down and said, "Look, you know, if if you really don't want to do this, we got to go out and we got to start to talk to some people." And I I remember there were you know the names that were being floated around were you know John Feldheimer. Uh, who I think was at uh, Sony. Sony TriStar at the time, Chris Albrecht, who was at HBO. 
um, sort of natural choices. And and guys actually who I had a pretty good relationship with, but but Jamie said to me, just know that if one of these guys comes in, it it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to embrace you, um, which was code for, you know, there's real risk in in your staying in your comfort zone. Right. And and it was at that moment in time that I said, you know what? All right. I'm going to do it. Uh, and I was named president of of the entertainment division um, at, at 32 years of age. And a month later. Jamie announced that he was leaving the company. I wanted to kill him because, <laughs> you know, with with Barry gone and Peter gone, he was my guy. He was my relationship because um, I really didn't know Rupert and Rupert didn't know me. All that time, Rupert was running around the world trying to, frankly, you know, he was so over leveraged. He was trying to save the company from bankruptcy. So we hadn't established a relationship um, of, of any significance. Now, you know, he had gotten an earful about me, undoubtedly, from, you know, from Barry and, and then, you know, Jamie and Peter. Um, and, and I think ultimately the reason they all thought that I needed to be the guy was because um, I really, for whatever silly reasons, I just really lived and breathed the brand. Again, going back to this notion of, of being contrarian, um, taking risks, being edgy. Um, it's, it was our DNA. And and I think everybody felt like it was there was too big a risk, uh, the the risk of of my leaving, if they brought somebody in over me, was was greater than the risk of giving me responsibility that I myself might not have thought I was ready for, um, and so you know that was um, in 1992. Uh, we, you know, we had a, we had a nice run. Just tell me the first show that you greenlit that you realized I'm a network president now and I can do this. Yeah. I don't know that I can tell you that it was the first show, but, but my biggest, you know, sort of memory of, of that, the first time I was, I was the president of the network as opposed to when I was asked to go back in the, in the late nineties and the early two thousands to oversee both the network and, and the studio. Um, I was very concerned at the time that nine Oh two and was growing a little long in the tooth. Um, again, taking, you know, us back to the Chuck Rosen breakfast. And I felt like it was time to come up with another, um, youth ensemble drama in which uh, the teenagers were empowered. And I don't know where it came from, right? You know, middle of the night, uh, I said, uh, you know, there's a, a family, a bunch of kids. Um, their parents uh, die in a tragic car accident. 
the kids have nobody to take care of them. They're going to be split up. Um, uh, and um, essentially they have to raise themselves. And um, I'd called the head of drama development, uh, a guy named Bob Greenblatt down in my office, who happens to be running the number one network today, NBC. And, and I pitched him this idea and, and he said, great, I, you know, I love it. Let me see if I can try to find a writer. Uh, and he found writers um, who wrote a terrific script, and and that became Party of Five, which became you know one of Fox's sort of defining shows. And again, I think because that the the the, the actual idea happened to have started with me, that that one has you know sort of special resonance. And then it won the Golden Globe the the first year, and and that was pretty remarkable. But. Um, You know, sort of jumping ahead, if if you don't mind. I mean, I, I, I think that we've talked a lot about risk-taking, right? We talked a lot about getting out of your comfort zone. Um, when I left Fox ultimately in 07, 08, um, after you know, my first network run and then overseeing the television studio and then finally being asked to oversee both the studio and the network and then producing for a couple of years. Um, I was really in uh, an interesting place. Um, I had gone about as far as you can go in the television business, right? I was still in my, you know, I was 47, right? And um, there I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up, you know, and it was sort of remarkable to me. It had never occurred to me that there was going to be another moment in time in my life where I had to ask myself that question, right? I assume you only had to do that once. Um, and, you know, for me, that's where curiosity kicked in. And it wasn't natural curiosity because I had been doing the same thing for a really long time. I think to some degree, curiosity is is a muscle that has to be exercised. You know, initially I thought, well, you know, this whole digital thing is sort of interesting. You know, um, maybe I ought to check that out. Right? People started talking about branded entertainment, thought. You know, I could do that. You know, brands wanting to become a part of the storytelling. It's sort of interesting to me. Again, I come from a marketing background. I'm not a D girl. Um, and that's how I landed in the world of MediaLink, um, which was a company that was representing big brands. Uh, uh, and, and all of those brands were, uh, it was an advisory firm, by the way, that, that's run by a gentleman named Michael Casson. Um, who's very tied in on Madison Avenue. And he was representing AT&T and Unilever and Microsoft. And and um, I was introduced to him uh, because I was, frankly, looking for some place to go and get my digital PhD. And we met at the Peninsula Hotel, and he said, you know, this is really fortuitous because I know all these brands – um, all these brands are interested in content. You know, I'm sort of faking it a little bit, right? But it would sure would be wonderful to have somebody inside the company 
who who really knew Hollywood and knew content and whatnot. Um, and I surmised at the time that it would represent a really great exchange of value. It'd be an opportunity for me to learn about a whole world that I knew very little about. Um, and obviously, it would be an opportunity for him to grow his business. Um, and and that's what I did for a couple of years as the chief content officer at, at MediaLink. Um, we started to represent digital content creators and, and, and distributors. Um, you mentioned the Machinimas and the Makers and the Alloys and the YouTubes and the Yahoos and Paramount Digital Entertainment. Um, and I got my digital PhD. Right. Um, and about two years ago, I decided that I really wanted to go off on my own. Um, I, the, the media link itself is very involved in, um, you know, sort of the ad sales of it all, even though it's not a sales organization and tries to be very clear about its intentions when, when representing these clients, uh, you know, at a certain point in time, if these clients are paying you money, you know, they want to know where their deals are. Like it's, it's great to, you know, be in the company of the CMO of Unilever, but if, if we're not making deals, you know, um, that's a problem. And, and and so I wasn't all that interested in um, the ad sales of it all. And so that's when I really discovered Silicon Beach and started spending a lot of time as a mentor in, in the accelerators down there, Launchpad LA, uh, Amplify, Mucker Lab. And that's where I really got the bug. You know, that's when curiosity kicked in. And today um, uh, I represent, you know, on any day, you know, a dozen and a half uh, digital media and technology companies. Um, uh, I'm on their board. I'm on their advisory board um, or I'm otherwise just advising them. Um, uh, and it's been an extraordinary experience uh, working in over the top television, working with e-commerce platforms. You mentioned, you know, Tradesy is an example. They just raised $13 million. It was just announced yesterday from Kleiner Perkins. Um, and one of the things that I've been able to do is, is actually combine my old life with my new life. Um, a lot of these digital companies want to, when appropriate, use traditional media to help them build their businesses. Because the truth of the matter is, television is still, I believe, the great megaphone, right? Certainly the world of, of content creation and consumption is unbelievably fragmented today. Um, but, um, you know, TV is, is still the one place where, um, you know, you can aggregate a, a, a pretty you know, significant audience, uh, at, at any given, given moment in time. Uh, and so have been developing some, some TV shows that, that have, um, uh, spun out of these digital businesses. You know, something I'm going to share something with you and our audience at the end of every episode, I normally ask a few different questions. I ask what people's proudest moments are, what their biggest disappointments, and I ask them advice for um, what they have for people. 
And I realized that you're the first person that I've ever interviewed where I don't have to ask that last question because you've already answered it about seven times. So I think what are you calling me redundant? (laughs) No, I'm calling you inspirational. All right. I'll I'll take inspirational. So we'll just take two more little tiny things and then we'll get out of here. What is your biggest disappointment professionally? I think that when you have these big jobs, um, You know, there's a finite period of time in which you get to sit in the chair, right? Um, And um, I I, I think that probably if I look back, I'd say in in 1994, after I'd been named president of the network at 32 years of age and, and had what I thought was, you know, two pretty damn good years, um... Rupert decided that he wanted to go in a different direction. He did not share my vision, frankly, as it turns out, everybody's vision for Fox. Um, He didn't understand why we were so proud of, of referring to ourselves as alternative and niche and edgy. Anytime I would use those words, um, he would have a very bad reaction. He wasn't around for at the time that the network was sort of born, when it found its voice. So um, Barry actually once said something interesting to me, which was he thought that Rupert, because of that, didn't have a full appreciation for how hard it actually was. Right. And and so um, when when Rupert decided he wanted to go broader, because as he said to me, why would you why would you be niche when you could be everything? Why would you settle for a piece of the pie when you can have the whole pie? Um, and actually replace me with with a, a really nice man named John Matoyan, who who extraordinarily enough, um, was actually had, had run MOWs for CBS. So, so literally movie of the weeks, you'd have to go to the other ends of the earth, you know, to find somebody who is the, the polar opposite of me, right? It's, you know, the guy who did movies of the week at CBS um, and as it turns out, you, you know, I think one of the first deals that got made was with Hallmark. <laughs> and now I was I was a free agent at the time. And the press was calling me like a gasp. I mean, they just couldn't they couldn't fathom what was happening to the Fox brand identity. And. You know, there was some gratification in that, but but there was there was mostly disappointment. Um, so I'd have to say that period in my life was was um, was challenging, and yet, you know, not long thereafter, I was asked to come back. 
by by Peter Chernin. And that's when I went to run the studio. Got it. Your uh, proudest moment professionally. You know, this is going to sound crazy. Um, I've never really thought about this. I think my proudest moment is the fact that I didn't go out to pasture um, in... 2008 um i suppose i could have could have played a lot of golf right uh and and it took real and it continues to take i think real courage and real energy to thrust myself into this new world of of you know, digital media and technology and e-commerce and and all of these things that um, I've had to learn about and have to continue to to educate myself on. Um, that fills me with with a fair amount of pride. Um, I was at and 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 this really is the end of 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 my answer. Uh, a couple of months ago, I was at an event that was thrown by uh, a venture capital firm here in, in Los Angeles. Um, in fact, one of their investments was in Maker Studios. Uh, they used to be called GRP. They're now called Upfront Ventures. Um, and they had an event downtown. I want to say there was about 300 uh, investors, entrepreneurs um, who were at this event. And I remember being outside for lunch. They had a bunch of food trucks. And I remember really sort of doing a 360 of, of, of this event um, with my eyes and thinking to myself, there's not a single person here who comes from my old world. Uh, and... That felt good. Oh, it should feel good. Any final words that you didn't say to the young executive or the young artist that you feel would, uh, if they're somewhere in the world living in the studio apartment or wherever they are, what it will take for them to get to the next level as an artist, as an actor, or as an executive like yourself who who made the trek and made the journey and got to the highest levels. Anything you haven't told anybody that would be, uh, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I guess when, when, when I say this to others, in some ways I'm, I'm saying it to myself to, you know, for, for, for the reinforcement, you know, that, that I as a 54 year old, you know, needs. And I think we all need in our lives. Um, regardless of what age we're at and 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 where we might be on the the career curve and that is have courage i can finish with one story which will literally take us back full circle to your beginning 
Uh, and it's a demonstration of the way in which the world has changed, you know, since you met the stand-up comedian these many years ago. Um, because I'm in this world of of early stage um, digital media and technology companies, uh, I, I get asked an awful lot to to you know sit down and 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 talk to folks and you know try to help them out, and I'm really happy to do it. Um, and this one gentleman was a CEO, is the CEO of a company called Mobcaster, which as it turns out is basically a Kickstarter for television series. And so I met with him when I was in New York and he was telling me about his company and he was telling me about how these two young Australian kids had created a show called The Weatherman. They, they um, wrote, directed and produced a 30 minute single camera comedy pilot, which they put up on the site in the hope of raising $73,000. That would be $27,000 less than your comic got for a holding <laughs> deal in order to shoot six more episodes of this show. <laughs> and I looked at this guy and I said, you know, that's pretty mind blowing because that's like craft services money. <laughs> you know, it's not that long ago that people that worked with me and for me at Fox would, would, would wouldn't come into my office and ask for $73,000 because they know I would say like, why are you bothering me with that? I mean, you know, you should be able to make that decision, right? Yeah. It's not that much money. Um, and and so anyway, long story short, I said, look, I, I think what you're doing is terrific and I'm happy to help you out. Um, he was interested in my sitting on his board. And, and I said, you know, uh, I don't really know that I I fully get embrace the model. And so you shouldn't have a board member that isn't, you know, absolutely 100 percent, you know, supportive of your vision. Um, he said, well, would you just look at the show? And I said, fine, I'll you know, look at the show. So I went home and I, you know, mobcaster.com, searched the weatherman, and I watched it and I laughed my ass off. Um, I thought it was really funny. And what was I going to do? So I, I call the guy back and I figure I'm going to tell him it's funny and then I'm going to return to my, you know, quiet, anonymous little advising life. Um, and he said, well, if you think it's that funny, will you talk to them? And, and what am I going to say? No. So I said, I'm happy to talk to them. Um, but with you in New York and me in LA and them in Australia, I'm not smart enough to figure out <laughs> how to set up a call, nor am I going to be the guy who's up at 3am. So he said, don't worry about it. I got it handled. So as it turns out, these two young Australian kids are in the edit bay at literally three o'clock in the morning. Um, and, and after they got done, you know, sort of flattering me, I said, look, you know, this is not about me. This is about you. Um, I think what you did was really funny. What, you know, what do you guys want? And they said, well, we want, and I don't do an Australian accent. Um, I wish I did. Uh, they said, we want to leave um, this uh, little um, country of ours, uh, and we want to come to Hollywood and make sitcoms. 
And I thought, well, you know, far be it for me to, you know, dash their hopes. You know, the business is pretty, been pretty good to me. So I said, all right, well, let me see what I can do. So I emailed a woman who I've known forever. She worked for me for, for many years at, at Fox and, and she's a, just a wonderful executive named Dana Walden, who's now the co-chairman of, of 20th Century Fox Television and, and has had just an extraordinary career. Um, I knew her as a teenager when she was dating a good friend of mine. So, you know, um, we go way back. Anyway, uh, I figured... I'm going to email her and and bring her attention to the weatherman. And of course, as I'm doing this, I'm thinking to myself, a month from now, I'm going to have to email her again and remind her that she needs to watch it, right? Except that within an hour, she emailed me back saying, I watched it. I think it's hilarious. She said, I'm going to send it to Johnny. I thought, who's Johnny? And as it turns out, there's a gentleman over there now who was like a manager in in the reality department of the Fox Network when 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 I was overseeing it all, who's who's become the top creative executive at the studio. His name is Jonathan Davis, of course. who's known as Johnny, and and a great guy. I mean, it was great fun for me to reconnect with him. Um, uh, especially when he called me a Titan, which, you know, all I could do is laugh at that. Um, and, and she sent it to him and, and he emailed me back, uh, uh, an hour later saying, not only do I think this is hilarious, but I want to make a deal. And so, I mean, I literally, I got chills now I'm too old to get chills. I've been doing this way too long to get chills. But there are two young kids in Australia who were about to hear that this show that they took a chance on, right, um, is is about to lead to a deal at 20th Century Fox Television. So literally only one of them could afford to come to America. And I walked him onto the Fox lot up to Johnny's office and... Uh, and Johnny said, I think this is hilarious. I wanted to meet you. I want to make a deal. I want to adapt this for American television. Um, and I have to say, it, it was one of the more gratifying days of my life. Uh, and, and you want to talk about, um, you know, the things that never change are the need to take risks, right? Always being rewarded for um, exercising your passion, believing in yourself when maybe others don't believe in you. Um, and then the things, then there are, there's the category of things that, that do and have changed, which is the world of media and, and the way in which digital distribution you know, in really has in you know not fully, but certainly to some degree, democratized creativity, because these guys you know never would have been discovered by Barry Katz, you know, in in Australia, uh, but but the ability to go online and and see their work 
you know, really shows the way in which the media business has evolved and the ways in which, um, you know, content is, is, you know, now being developed. Um, obviously, it's still being developed largely through traditional means, but, but there's lots of different points of entry now for ideas. Um, and, and as I say, you know, to put too fine a point on it, but um, take a chance. Take a, take a chance on life. Take a chance on your dream. Um, and um, more often than not, uh, good things will happen. I think that's amazing. This has been great. You know, you sat with some of the Titans and were wondering, like, what were you doing in that room? Uh, I'm glad I got a chance to sit with one of the Titans and uh, wondering why I'm in this room. And uh, Because it's your office. <laughs> and it's your couch. And it's your show. That's true. But pretty soon it'll be yours. No. Um, and I, I, At this point, I'm just hoping you validate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we do. And so uh, Sandy Grusho, I will tell you, from that 11th floor apartment, overlooking Beverly Hills 90210 High School to actually being a president of a network that produced a show around that high school. A pretty amazing career, an amazing life, and I'm very grateful you're here. It's been an honor. Thank you so much. Thank you. The, the, the pleasure and the privilege has been mine. First podcast ever. First one. All right. As usual, you've been listening to Industry Standard. Thank you so much with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, please tell all your friends. And if you didn't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's glory. I'll scream your name and put you on shoulders and walk you to fame. You'll get all the money and drive that fancy car. All the people love you because you're going for life is for the dreamers. They have all to gain. It's never quite over till it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.